And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You aren't just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge, a weekend that will go down in history. That's coming up. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge. Uh, Normally, I would start off uh, this day and saying, hope you had a great weekend. Thanksgiving weekend. We all have so much to thank for. And yet, uh, this was a tough weekend. This was a tough weekend for a lot of people. Horrific. Tragic. Watching the events coming in from the Middle East. Watching the situation in Israel and Tel Aviv and Jerusalem in many of the small communities between Tel Aviv and the Gaza Strip. What happened in Gaza? What happened in Israel? We're going to talk about some of that in this opening episode of the week, a Tuesday. Monday was a holiday, but for a lot of people, it was a holiday with tragic overtones and concern and desperation and wondering what might be happening to relatives and friends in the Middle East. I want to take, um, we're going to talk about some of this in detail with Brian Stewart. It's a Tuesday, and Brian's been with us talking about Ukraine for the last year and a half. Today, he will always also use his experience from the Middle East, having covered many conflicts and wars in the Middle East, in Israel and Lebanon. He knows the area. And understands the story. And he'll also link it towards Ukraine as well. But I want to start off talking about, I guess, a bit of a Canadian angle uh, to this story. And here it is. In 1975, with South Vietnam in its final hours before capitulating to the north, Canadians woke up to hear on CBC Radio, ex-correspondent and at that time covering those final days in South Vietnam was Mike Duffy. And he was reporting from Saigon and his story was one that left Canadians feeling, feeling terrible about what their country had done in those final hours. Because the story Duffy reported on was about how one of the Canadian planes that had come in to bring Canadians out or to bring those who worked for Canadians out was instead filling its belly with a limousine that belonged to uh, the embassy, I guess was used to move around some of its senior diplomats, but they were taking up space in the plane with a limousine as opposed to taking up space on the plane with those who worked for the embassy. Maybe not Canadians, but Vietnamese who were trying desperately to get out. It was a nasty little story that left people embarrassed and the government flummoxed as to what to say and how to try and explain it. 
It was a black mark on Canada. So then we get to this weekend and reports that in Israel, Canadians who were in Israel, either living there or visiting, were desperately trying to find a way to get out. So what'd they do when they couldn't get the information they needed? What could have been about passports, could have been about flights, it could have been about anything. You phone the embassy. Well, they said, and I know this, I know this for a fact, um, some of them were getting a recorded announcement saying, hey, it's Thanksgiving and we're off for the weekend. Call us on Tuesday or leave a message. We'll get back to you on Tuesday. Uh, This is not actually what you need when you're in a city that's being bombed. Under rocket attack or gunfire. But that is what some people got. Now, the Canadian government is saying, no, 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 no. We were swamped with calls and uh, the embassy wasn't closed. We were trying to help. But clearly, some people were getting that message. They were definitely getting that message. I know that. So that doesn't look good. Now, on the other hand, there was a story that floated around last night, and some Canadian news agencies were uh, were, were releasing it. That there had been, excuse me, just for a sec. There had been a. G7 meeting, that's the G7 countries, United States, UK, France, Germany, Italy, Canada, and Japan. There'd been a G7 meeting to have a common statement on the situation. Yet Canada wasn't at it, hadn't been invited. And obviously, a lot of people, including the opposition, Pounced on that story. Well, there's kind of a problem in that story because it wasn't a G7 meeting. It was a meeting of a group of countries that you rarely hear about, but they're called the Quint Nations, Q-U-I-N-T, the Quint Nations. There are five of them. And they are the United States, UK, France, Germany, and Italy. Canada's not in that in that group. Neither is Japan. And it was the Quint nations that put out a statement condemning the Hamas attack on Israel. Now, who are the Quint nation? Well, it's all related to nuclear. They're either nuclear-powered nations like U.S., U.K., and France, or they're nuclear-sharing nations, like Germany and Italy. Canada and Japan are neither of those, and therefore weren't part of that meeting. Now, should it have been a G7 meeting? I don't know, but it wasn't one. That's the point. So while Canada is being... 
held up under some criticism for not being in that meeting. They, they, they weren't part of the group of countries that were in that meeting. And Canada has been out front with a condemnation of what happened. Prime Minister has been on the phone to uh, leaders in the in the region, the Middle East region, including uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel. I'm sure there's lots to question the Canadian government on, and we will see that today. Not the least of which may be this whole issue about whether the embassy was closed or not, and why it was closed, and how it was helping and whether or not there are flights going in because Air Canada's not flying at the moment into Tel Aviv. And neither are some other airlines, not just Air Canada. So how are they getting countries out? Or how are they getting citizens out who want to get out? Other countries have already started airlifts. But so far, not Canada. Anyway... Enough on that. I want to get to the some of the questions that arise out of what happened on the weekend, including how does this impact the situation in Ukraine? Because there will be an impact. So our regular Friday guest, Friday, our regular Tuesday guest, Brian Stewart is with us. And we're going to talk to him about all of that. So enough from me. Let's get at the... Uh, Let's get out the questions for my good friend, my colleague, correspondent, war correspondent, seen it all, Brian Stewart. Brian, we've often talked in the last uh, you know, year and a half about the intelligence factor, who knows what, when they know it, and how they use that intelligence. Um, and whenever you talk about intelligence, People have always said, well, you know, nobody does it better than the Israelis. People get their uh, intelligence data from the the Israelis sometimes. So here we've witnessed over these last couple of days what appears to be an enormous intelligence failure. You've got got an air, land, sea um, invasion from Gaza into Israel, um, rockets firing everything, uh, with apparently absolutely no sense from the Israelis that this was about to happen. How do you read that? Is it is it the massive intelligence failure that everyone is talking about? It is massive, and there's no fine, there's no way to under, undercut that uh, diagnosis. It is massive. You know, in 1973, there was a major, major intelligence failure by Israel when it had a surprise attack against it by Arab nations. But at least then, the intelligence services had at least had picked up indications that there were real dangers. The failure was in put, not putting all the pieces together and coming soon enough to the right conclusion. So that was a failure. This time, the failure is five times worse because they didn't even have the indications. Uh, they really didn't have, they weren't picking up anything, it seems, of a very detailed, sophisticated, and lengthy in planning and uh, and, and swift in execution uh, military operation. Uh, so they came up with a blank, and that is really uh, something that nobody would have anticipated. And they weren't, no. they weren't alone on that. The Americans didn't have a clue either. 
uh, the, the uh, what was going on. Many nations also have a close watch on the Middle East for obvious reasons. The British, nobody seemed to have picked up anything that was happening. And it seems to me what the uh, the, the uh, Hamas was able to do, uh, but this was obviously planned for months in advance. There had to be a lot of training. This is sophisticated stuff. Hang gliders and, and you know, breaking through incredible Israeli defenses and spreading as quickly as you can into the countryside. It had to have command and control and all those kind of sophisticated operations. And nothing was picked up. What they had to have done, I think, and, and others have thought too, is they went low tech, as low as you could possibly get. Perhaps intelligence services now have become so high tech sophisticated that they're all trying to read each other and pick up little signals of this, that, and the rest of it. Uh, I think what the, they clearly did, perhaps with a lot of help from Iran, but that's not clear yet. But in any ways, they certainly were financed and trained to the extent by Iran, was to go really low tech. They went back to passing messages by hand, um, you know, voice only, uh, back and forth. Um, even that would take an enormous skill, but they did everything that couldn't be listened to, spotted from above, seen from drones, and then just worked out by even normal human, uh, where different people were going. It'll take months to try and figure out how they did this. But that's, I think, was the secret is you go low tech as possible to defeat the high tech. Yeah. And uh, that's what they did here. It seems. It seems that. I, I'm still, I still find it, you know, it's one thing to send a small team of your fighters in to do something. This was spread over, as you said, like, you know, land, sea, and air, a thousand, at least a thousand, of uh, of, of your fighters. Um, so there, there must have been a, a vast amount of knowledge on the part of a lot of people. This was about to happen, and yet nothing got out. And you know, the Israelis pride themselves, or always have prided themselves, in the fact that they were able to infiltrate some of these groups, like um, like Hamas, like uh, Hezbollah, and others. Um, you know, to get information. So they were always kind of on top of it. But here, nothing, or apparently nothing, or if they were getting anything, they weren't taking it seriously. Right. It, it's possible to be a massive scandal, which will, will come out, and we'll learn in coming weeks that, oh, well, one branch did have these warnings, but uh, it wasn't taken seriously by another branch, or they didn't think it was urgent, it was something down the road they should deal with. I, I would be not at all surprised if that's what we started hearing. Oh, oh, oh we forgot to certain uh, to, to connect with the military branch on this possibility because we thought it's so unlikely. Part of it too is anticipation. Clearly, nobody anticipated a Hamas would be this skill. Uh, nobody anticipated they could pull this kind of. Uh, I hate to say use the term, given the the. the casualty rates and everything else, but the sophistication of this kind of operation, they say, well, you know, in their dreams, there's, you know, we hear talk of some kind of, you know, coming in by air, by sea, that'll be the day. That kind of arrogant approach that uh, often very uh, brainy intelligence uh, people can 
tend to fall into. And I think that might be partially or maybe a very important indication of how on earth such a fiasco, such a dangerous and deadly fiasco occurred. Um, one of the other things, you know, like, like you, I'm sure, um, have been doing, uh, you've probably been doing what I've been doing for the last couple of days is watching a lot of TV, reading a lot of stuff on uh, online uh, in, in terms of the analysis of what's been going on. But one of the the streams of, uh, of some thought is that what we are witnessing, not just uh, in what we saw over the weekend, but in the bigger picture over the last couple of years, we're witnessing a, a kind of change in the world order. And part of it is based on the fact that the Americans have kind of gone more isolationist in the last half dozen years, uh, pulling out of Iraq, pulling out of Afghanistan, uh, being very careful about uh, where they send people, not where they send money, not where they send arms, because clearly they've been doing that uh, in Ukraine, but their, their, their footprint isn't what it used to be, which tended to make other people more cautious about what they were about to do. So you've had Russia going to Ukraine, you've had China talk about uh, Taiwan, you've witnessed what uh, Hamas has just done, and there are other examples too. But it all filters down to this this question of whether or not there's kind of a change in the world order that's taking place. Do you go that far? I think there is. The One of the ironies is that things seem to be going quite well for American diplomacy in the last couple of years in terms of working towards getting more Arab states to deal with with, uh, with uh, Israel, even getting the Saudis to be sort of talking back channel about opening the kind of almost alliance between Israel, Saudi, and the United States. It all seemed to be going quite well, and then it falls apart. Uh, or at least is delayed, significantly delayed, <clears throat> because um, I think if anything else, this attack on Israel was a warning to the Arab governments as well. Watch it. We're not going to let you get away with peace deals with Israel as long as, you know, we're still in this war. This is what we can do. Take fair notice. Uh, this is very much how it's putting its, its flag up there and then saying we now uh, have a capability you didn't even dream of you better beware. I think, but I think the lack of big power, uh, I mean, the fact that it, all the big powers are squabbling at times almost like children, you know, US, Russia, China, uh, there's not the, in the EU, European countries, it's, there's not the solidity there that would help. I don't know how much it would help because I think there are a couple of other things really ominously at play here. It's not just the lack of American footprint that is noticeable. But there's an element of the American incompetence that is seen in the world. The, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, for instance, has been mentioned by many, many people. The fall of Kabul, the shambles of Kabul, um, which uh, was really remarkable. That has convinced a lot of people uh, the Americans just aren't up to the same kind of quality as stuff they were abroad before. And the other thing is I think, to me, the most scary thing of all is this is proving just how deadly small groups of human beings can be with modern technology and with the kind of murderous weaponry. I shouldn't say murderous, all weaponry. 
potentially murderous, but but ferocious weaponry that is out there with the missiles, the drones, the the various explosive devices and killing devices. Uh, it's making guerrilla forces potentially more damaging all the time, and I don't know what the answer to that is. Uh, you know, it's really something the world has to take very seriously when a major military power like Israel can be dealt this kind of damage within the first 24 hours is is just mind-boggling. I mean, it's like 9-11, isn't it? It's just, who could have imagined uh, nearly 4,000 people, nearly 4,000 people killed in New York in a space of an hour. Um, So we have to sit down and start reimagining what really can happen and how to deal with it. You know, scary stuff. Very scary stuff. You know, you mentioned nine uh, eleven and in uh, your earlier comment about wondering whether or not the intelligence failure was based on the fact that perhaps one agency knew something didn't tell another agency. That's exactly what we found out right in nine eleven. That uh, those kind of things happened there, and it was, uh, and they had to restructure though uh, a lot of the intelligence service in the United States uh, when they realized in the investigations that followed 9-11, of which I'm sure there are going to be many investigations in Israel too, that there was this intelligence failure partly caused by the fact they weren't talking to each other about what they did know. Um, let me um, let me move it to, uh, let's bring back our normal Tuesday conversation, which is, uh, which is about, uh, well, first of all, just before I get to Ukraine, one other thing I noticed in these in this last day or so, the Americans have moved the biggest aircraft carrier they have, uh, the USS um, Gerald Ford, uh, named after the former president, off the uh, into the eastern Mediterranean, not far from the coast, uh, as a clear signal to everybody that they're there and they uh, and they have a, a lot of power and might if needed. And the reason I I, I looked at the images of that. Gerald R. Ford, is it reminded me of when you were in Beirut in uh, the early 80s and the New Jersey, the big battleship, the American battleship from Second World War era was sitting out there in the Mediterranean lobbing, uh, you know, Volkswagen bus size payloads into the Shoof Mountains. Um, but it was, uh, it was the same kind of thing, although it kind of didn't work. In, in the sense that uh, they wanted it to, but showing American might in the waters off off that coast, just north of where we're talking now. Exactly. And I think it's more warning to other uh, Arab states don't get involved in this or to other even uh, guerrilla groups not to get involved in this. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I thought of that myself. I looked out and saw the New Jersey, which was almost a sister of the German Bismarck, same size, same firepower. I heard the riot, the shells went over my eyes, kind of blurred because of the vacuum created in the air. It was like nothing. It landed up in the Shoof Mountains to try and deter rebels up there. I went up the next day. There were big holes in the ground, and kids were walking around with proudly with sweaters saying, "I was fired on by the New Jersey." <laughs> it was zero, zero impact. People thought it was the status symbol, and I think it's 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 really. It just show the flag, the big foot is back. But how, what use it can be is very, of course, limited in that regard. Okay, let's move um, uh, to the Ukraine uh, situation. For starters, 
this focus of attention, the world's eyes are on uh, Israel and Gaza right now, um, and it may last a while. Uh, this, is not, this is not going to be over in a couple of hours. Um, what is the impact that it has on the story in Ukraine? Um, because nobody's talking about Ukraine in the last three days, uh, and you wonder how much talking about Ukraine is going on in the White House um, uh, with all this happening in uh, in Israel. What's the impact? Well, this is a you you put your finger on it. I think the the, the really serious problem here for Ukraine is, is horrendously bad news for Ukraine. Is that at the very time they were trying to reinstill more attention on Kiev and its demands and financial needs and its weaponry, certainly in the United States after a rather lukewarm reception there uh, in the last month, uh, at the very time it's trying to get more attention back on the war, along comes this, which will absolutely, possibly for months now, take away the world's attention from Ukraine. And also it's going to hit, you know, it will give more armor, I think, to all those uh, American, well, the Republicans mainly, politicians who have been claiming we do, we're spending too much money on Ukraine. We have to look to our own defenses. We have other concerns. You will now be saying, you know, even more reason to cut back some support and help for Ukraine because the really big issue for America has always been the Middle East. We have this obligation to Israel that trumps everything else. No, no. <laughs> unintended there. And we have China to worry about at the same time. So I think so. the Ukraine government fears a loss of attention, potentially a loss of support, and more than anything else, potentially a, a decline of morale, a decline of belief in, in Ukraine, that it's just one of many conflagrations around the world. We're going to have to look to others and uh, and, and more and more American attention, and it's a short attention nation. Often, it's it's very limited in its attention span. The United States, as most democracies are, but it more so, uh, it switches elsewhere. Ukraine's going to feel, I think, a real cool, cool air of uh, neglect starting to creep under the door. Well, cool that's a pessimistic outcome, yeah. but. Um, but it you also know, may it's, explain. It's a, it's a pessimistic time right now for Ukraine. May also explain why there has been kind of renewed discussion again, and when this comes up with us every every month or so, renewed discussion about, gee, you know, that offensive's not going that that well. Maybe it really is time to start talking about um, finding a way out of this, some kind of negotiated settlement. That. That's come up again in the, just in the, in the last week or so before the things happened in, in Israel. Uh, do we take it any more seriously than, uh, than at any time in the past? I think so. I mean, in the past, I mean, there are always from the first firings going on, uh, people calling for negotiations as to war, but we're really not really based on the, the reality of the situation. Uh, we're right now at a position where with the uh, the offensive not going as well as so many anticipated, there are second thoughts about what we can anticipate Ukraine can actually do in this war, and um, what you know, people are now looking at some of the most respected analysts of this war uh, and seeing if they're starting to shift position, and, and almost no one's more respected 
that an American historian, academic, military historian, historian of Russia, Stephen Kotkin, um, who has written massively about Russia and its wars, he has come out of late very reluctantly and sadly saying he thinks unless the West is going to go for it, regime change to overthrow Putin, which is not going to do, uh, he admits, it really is time for Ukraine and the world to start looking now at how to end this war. Because he says, even if the Ukrainians get to the sea as off, even if they split the Russians in half, what then? They're not going to take the Crimea. That seems absolutely impossible at the moment. And even if they did, most of the population, there is Russian speaking, so they'd have their own security problem there. It's not going to achieve all its goals. Uh, it's, he wishes it could. He would be behind it fully if, it, if he thought it could. But he doesn't think it can. And in the meantime, there's Putin, who doesn't care about the losses that much. He's in a mystical sense of Russia, you know, exceptionalism, following its destiny, and it'll stay in there. So he thinks that the, the West and Ukraine have to really start talking now about what kind of peace process, ceasefire, long-term negotiation could take place. And uh, this has alarmed a lot of people because, of course, once that begins, Kotkin referenced something that that really caught my attention. He said, you know, the failure of the Ukraine, not the failure, but the the underachievement of the Ukraine offensive might be its Tet Offensive moment. Now, for those who don't remember back to January 1968, that was the time in the Vietnam War when the Americans uh, were making great uh, pronouncements of how well they were doing and how well the war was going, when the the, the communist insurgency in the South, aided by uh, uh, forces from North Vietnam, launched a surprise, again, a surprise offensive right into Saigon and the major cities of the South. And that so shook American confidence. It really shook American confidence that this war could be in any way won soon or even long term, that it's, it realized it would have to have a negotiated settlement of the Vietnam War. And that we should know took years to pull off, but it started the process. And maybe it's going to be the underachievement of Ukraine in this offensive, barring, as, as analysts will point out, barring a meltdown, a crash of the Russian military, which is always possible and can't be dismissed this fall and winter, it, it will mean basically the, the we're going to have to start some kind of peace process, long, hard, and difficult, though it may well be, almost certainly will be. Okay. I've got a question for you from uh, one of our listeners. Um but I'm going to take a quick break first and then come back with the question. So right back after this. And welcome back. Peter Mansbridge here. The Tuesday episode of The Bridge. That means Brian Stewart. Uh, we've been talking about, well, we started off talking about uh, Israel and Hamas. We've moved it to uh, Ukraine. Although there's still kind of a, there's a thread running through today's broadcast that is very much about both these two issues. Um, 
Okay, uh, you're listening on SiriusXM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. And however you're listening, we're glad you're with us. Okay, Brian, we um, get to a question. Uh, it's from Catherine Tamanen. She's a professor at the University of Toronto. Um, she says, my question today is for Brian Stewart. I appreciate your Tuesday episodes with him and the ongoing coverage of the war in Ukraine. His analysis is incredibly helpful in understanding what's going on, and I appreciate both of your discussions and commentary about the historical context of current affairs. I was wondering, and here's her question, I was wondering if you might ask Brian about the role of women in this war, the Ukraine war. So why don't... uh, why didn't I ask you that? What can you tell us? Okay, it's it's a it's a really good question. And in fact, the role of women on the Ukraine side is very significant. There are something like fifty thousand. You know, they're always a bit dodgy with figures. Both sides of this war, but there are fifty thousand women in military positions in Ukraine now, uh, which is about fifteen twenty percent of the whole military uh, force. And five thousand of those. Uh, Female soldiers are on the front line uh, doing uh, remarkable work uh, as drone commanders. Um, One has even uh, been head of a battalion uh, in in combat. Uh, But significantly, there there are several roles that are seen to be um, uh, areas where the women perform extremely well indeed. And one is uh, snipers, which uh, takes some people by surprise, but... They have to remember during the Second World War, the Russians used women snipers to an enormous effect. They were very active in Stalingrad. They were very active whenever there was close quarter with the Germans. In fact, the Germans feared them very greatly. Um, And the women have been told by commanders in Ukraine that that's something they seem to perform. For some reason, nobody can figure out better than men. Maybe that's just a myth I don't know, but it seems to be believed. And there's one... uh, as an example, there is one woman uh, fighter there with a wonderful name, Eugenia Emerald, uh, who's been a mother of three, and uh, sorry, mother of a three-year-old. Uh, she ran a jewelry business before the war, and she's now one of their leading and, and famed snipers, very renowned for her uh, casualty uh, score. And she said when asked why was she was chosen to be a sniper, why women seem to be doing this particularly well, she says, Quote, I quote her, if a man hesitates whether to make a shot or not, a woman never will. End of quote. I uh, don't know how true that is, but it's it's uh, she put it in very blunt terms. Um, and that seems to be uh, quite a score. They're, they're active, again, in the Second World War. The Russians, who haven't made that much use of women in this war, but are starting to recruit them more, uh, used uh, women as not only as uh, snipers and obviously as close-in combat medics and the rest of that, but as fighter pilots. It's a very successful Russian uh, women fighter pilots. I, I don't, both air forces in this uh, case give out very little detail, so I don't know if women are piloting um, fighter planes right now or not. I simply don't know. But that is interesting, and it looks like as the casualty rate has increased uh, for both armies and particularly for the Russian, they're going to have to turn more and more to women to fill in a lot of those slots. And uh, when, when women get into the military, 
uh, as was the case in our Western armies in World War II, uh, and it's the case more so, much more so now, women want to take on very, very effective roles. Did you see the movie Enemy of the Gates? Yes, I did, yes. I did. Incredible. Stalingrad. Stalingrad, yeah. Oh, my God. Jude Law, yeah. uh, Joseph Fiennes. Amazing movie, but it was it was all about snipers, right? On both sides. Right. Um, yes. And it was uh, uh, the Russians and the Germans, uh, snipers. Um, okay. Uh, last question. And this brings us back to Ukraine and uh, relates these two, two stories between um, Israel and, uh, and Ukraine. Here's the question. Um, we talked about the effect of the fighting in Israel and Gaza on Ukraine. Uh, what did both sides in Ukraine, or what perhaps are both sides learning from what they're witnessing? Or what, let me rephrase this, what did both sides in Israel, so in other words, Hamas and Israel, what did they learn from watching what happened or what's been happening in Ukraine, or what do you think they might have learned? Well, I think like all of our armies, they they learned uh, a lot because they've had now a well over a year and a half of watching an amazing coverage of this war. I think what they would probably be led to emphasize, I think Hamas may have taken a lot of information from this, was the the usefulness of small groups of, 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 of soldiers using soldier fire, soldier fire, soldier fire, sorry, soldier fired weapons um, in, in very swift movements. Uh, they've also, uh, you know, learned certainly new techniques of fighting house to house and close in fighting for villages and stuff like that. The, the basic ability, tactic that both sides are using, which is not to send in tanks and armored cars first, because armored vehicles first, because they will be knocked out by a higher technology, but to send in infantry again um, uh, in, in small units, but is, you know, doing incredible damage. So I think they've learned a lot of that. I'm not so much sure how much they had to learn, uh, given that they've been thinking about war and modern war nonstop for decades on end. But what strikes me now when I look at Gaza and remember what Gaza's like to visit um, and know that the Israelis seem determined to go in and clear Gaza out of Hamas. I think your reference to Stalingrad actually is is almost more in tune with what might be coming up on a somewhat smaller scale, but horrifying scale. Uh, the Israelis must be thinking this will be the most difficult task they've ever faced. How on earth do you go into a built-up area of two and a half to over 2.3 million people uh, who have nowhere really to run to, can't, can't pour out as refugees. Where, where do they actually go? Also rescue hostages, but fight not only street by street, but building, you know, building by building, room by room virtually. It's just a horrifying prospect uh, for the Israelis. And it's something I'm sure Hamas has put a lot of study into uh, getting ready for. I think it's and just as much as they studied long and hard for the offensive, they've been also studying very long and hard about the the Israeli counteroffensive that they knew was going to come 
and they have prepared for in a multitude of ways we can probably hardly imagine even now, but heavily dynamiting, use of mines, use of hostages, obviously. Um, it's I think military study groups around the world, officer corps around the world, are just scratching their head right now saying this is the worst nightmare scenario ever to fall before a modern military uh, command to pull off. I think if, uh, you know, for those who are, you know, haven't been to Israel, haven't seen the Gaza Strip uh, or haven't read about it enough or seen films on it, this is one of the most densely populated small areas in the world. As you said, what, two and a half million people. I think it's the third most densely populated place on Earth. You think think Manhattan, island of Manhattan, even smaller than that. I mean, really. Right. Uh, Built up. And and a great number of these, uh, the population are children, a normally high number of children. So uh, they had, at the moment have really no secure drinking water. Uh, their, their, their infrastructure has been pounded. It's, it's, it's hardly existing. And now it's going to become total cut off. Um, I, I, I don't know, see how they're going to do it. I think they probably, and this is uh, thinking long-term, probably wrongly, they're going to have to go for a siege first. The hope that they can wear down, starve down even, uh, the population is whatever that horror show looks like, it probably may cost less lives than going in and fighting full out. Either uh, way. Because it, those buildings, those buildings are not always well constructed. Those high rises can collapse yeah. uh, on the, as we've seen in many other locations. The casualties will just be beyond imagining. And the, the danger, obviously, for Israel is it seems to have the support of much of the world right now as a result of what happened on the weekend. But that will start to ebb away if they try to starve the place out. I mean, listen. Yes. and then- yeah, yeah, As you said, you know, one of the reasons that they've taken hostages and they took them straight back to Gaza is for that very reason. That's their, that's their negotiating ticket right to try to prevent what's uh, the one the one big mistake i think yeah the one big mistake i think hamas made maybe it was not calculated maybe it was just runaway no discipline but the massacre stories of civilians we're hearing from inside israel they are the pictures that are going to start coming out in, in great numbers they are going to shock the world and you really wonder you know, to Hamas, wouldn't it have been wiser to say, for heaven's sakes, don't create massacres, don't create civilians, get hostages, yes, but but try to keep the moral upper hand. I think, I think basically, they just couldn't discipline uh, a population that has been cooped up in, in uh, Gaza all these years and has great psychological stress factors running through them. They just couldn't get the discipline they really needed for this kind of attack. Well, unless they just murderously went to say, kill as many as you can, and then that'll come out. But one way or another, Israel's got, the old expression, got his blood up, and it is is going to enact a, a ferocious revenge. I think we can all expect that. All right. Well, on that note... Um... 
you know, obviously we're all going to be watching and listening and trying to. And, and both of us want to make the point that we're not, we're not, you know, using, you know, we're not forgiving the ills of one side by the ills of another side. You don't get into that. No. Right now, it's the massacre story that is going to cause uh, so much attention. And that was is. that was a really bad move by Hamas. All right, I'll leave it at that. Um, Thanks, Brian. And, uh, you know, it's going to be, you know, obviously going to watch, be watching both these stories as they continue to unfold over the next uh, uh, days and weeks because this uh, neither That's one of them are on the verge days, of ending. Um, and they are sober days. And the impact that could result uh, in a broader conflict uh, is... Uh, is horrifying uh, just to uh, to think of if things are bad enough as they are. Um, uh, the fact that they could get worse is uh, is very scary. All right, Brian, thanks so much. Uh, we will talk again in a week's time. Hey, Peter. Thank you. Brian Stewart with us uh, to talk about, well, you heard him, to talk about Israel, to talk about Ukraine, to talk about the links between the two, to talk about how other countries are reacting. And... Um, how the days forward may look. Now, I'm sure you have many thoughts on this as well, and I'm uh, I'm happy to read them um, and consider them for Thursday's Your Turn program. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. That is where to write. Uh, please recall, uh, remember to include your name and where you are writing from. Uh, and if you can, keep your letters short. Um, as you know, I usually take out one sort of element from each of these letters um, that make it onto air. Not every letter makes it onto air, uh, but many of them do. So we'll uh, look forward to hearing from you. Tomorrow, it's uh, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth uh, with um, Bruce Anderson. And um, I'm sure we'll touch on a lot of this as well tomorrow. Thursday, your turn. That's your letters. And the random ranter. I don't know what he has in store for this week. Uh, Friday, it's good talk with uh, Chantel and Bruce. So that's the week ahead. It's going to be quite the week, I'm sure. Uh, Thanks so much for listening on this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. (laughs) 